Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap, hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program where we meet together and discuss this book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. This group learning program has been going on for about three and a half months now, this iteration of it. And we've got about another three and a half months remaining in our program. We've come to the point in time where we've really covered a good amount of content in terms of the Buddhist teachings and what leads to enlightenment on this path to enlightenment. And now that we've covered a lot of significant chapters, we've come to chapter 10, which discusses what is merit. This is really important to understand as part of your journey to enlightenment. So thank you all for joining for today's class. As we discuss this topic, just like always, we'll have an opportunity for you to ask questions and get answers to your questions. If you're in Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, you'll be able to put those questions into the comment section. Our moderators will be sure your question gets asked during the class. And if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. So let's go ahead and talk about what is merit so that you can understand this important topic in order to help guide you further and closer to enlightenment, this journey that you're on in order to experience this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, where you purify the mind of these unwholesome qualities. Just last week, we were speaking about the natural law of gamma. And pretty much we talk about the natural law of gamma every single class in one form or another. But we had one specific class where we really dove in and talked about the natural law of gamma. And just prior to that, we talked about the three poisons or the three unwholesome roots or the three fires. And we talked about how craving, anger, and ignorance or the unknowing of true reality is the three unwholesome roots. All unwholesome gamma is going to be generated from those three unwholesome roots. And then the way to transform those three unwholesome roots is to then practice the three wholesome roots of generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. So generosity is what transforms the mind from this craving, this mental longing with a strong eagerness in clinging and holding on to things. There's various teachings and practices that the Buddha shared in order to help us understand how to better train the mind to let go because craving, desire, attachment is the cause of discontentedness. These discontent feelings that the mind experiences where it's up and down and up and down and up and down is all based on craving, desire, attachment. And it's breathing mindfulness meditation and generosity, which is 
being used on a continuous ongoing basis to train the mind to let go. And then we have these other poisons and we have these other antidotes, these poisons of anger and ignorance. Those are antidoted with loving kindness and wisdom, which we've talked about at other times. But today we're going to really dive into talking about generosity, wholesome gamma, and a specific type of wholesome gamma. And all of this is meant to help transform your mind as a practitioner that if the mind has selfishness and it's holding on to things really tightly by understanding this topic of generosity and more specifically what is merit, then you can start to transform the mind and start getting to a point where the mind can now not hold on to things so tightly. And you'll experience that by practicing generosity and specifically merit that it will help to produce wholesome results in your life because you'll be able to now openly share and give and experience the benefits of having done so. So let's talk just about what is merit specifically and then we'll kind of bring generosity into it here in a little bit. In most classes, I will share a little bit of the Buddha's words as part of the class. In this class, I'm going to be sharing a lot of the Buddha's words because I think he shared this topic very, very clearly like he does all the topics. But I think understanding his words on this topic of merit is really important. It's so important, in fact, that out of this entire book series of 13 books, there's one book devoted specifically to generosity because it's so important for our practice. So let's understand what is merit. Merit is wholesome gamma. And remember, gamma is cause and effect or action and result, essentially the results of your decisions. So wholesome gamma is going to be results of your decisions that are based in generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. Unwholesome gamma is going to be based in craving, anger, and ignorance. When we make decisions through those three unwholesome roots, it's going to produce unwholesome results or unwholesome gamma. When we make decisions through the wholesome roots of generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom, it's going to produce wholesome gamma or wholesome results. So when we practice merit, it produces these wholesome results and it essentially produces these wholesome results because what we're doing is we're practicing generosity, making these offerings and gifts to the community of virtuous ordained practitioners and anyone who's attained one of the four stages of enlightenment. This is the way that we support these teachings in order to come into our own life and come into the life of other people. When Gautama Buddha taught 2,500 years ago, he shared these teachings and he went from being a prince to being a homeless person who just walked down the street and accepted whatever food that was offered to him. And in doing so, it helped to create a lot of humbleness in his mind. But essentially, these teachings that he shared 2,500 years ago, the only reason why they're reaching you and they're reaching me is that over 2,500 years, there's just been one offering after another, after another, after another of time, effort, energy, and resources to help these teachings continue to flourish in the world. This community of virtuous ordained practitioners and anyone who's attained one of the four stages of enlightenment 
is referred to as the Aryan Sangha. This is the words that you'll see if you look to the original source teachings of the Buddha in the Pali text. The word Sangha means community, and this word Aryan means noble. So this word Aryan Sangha refers to the noble community, and this refers to anyone who's attained one of the four stages of enlightenment and the ordained practitioners. The reason why the Buddha used the word noble is that during his lifetime, there was a really strong caste system in the region of the world that he was born into. And essentially, if you were born into a low family that were laborers and working in the fields and things like this, then it was thought that you were kind of destined to a horrible life. Or if you were born into this kind of rich, affluent family, then it was thought that your life was going to just be marvelous because you had all this wealth and you were born into a wealthy family. And then, of course, there were the nobles or the royal family, which Gautama Buddha, prior to being a Buddha, was part of. And the people that were in the lower caste in kind of a common average person, they were taught and they were taught to believe by other people that you know, they were low-level people in society and that they couldn't really experience a better life and, a, and have a kind of spiritual life that was going to be fulfilling for them. So when the Buddha started teaching, he started casting all of his teachings to be in terms of noble, right? This is why we call it sometimes the noble eightfold path, right? And the reason why is because the Buddha taught people that, hey, it's not about what family you were born into. It's not about what circumstances you were born into. It's about the wisdom that you cultivate in the mind. And it's about your moral conduct that makes you noble, right? That makes you a better person. It's, it's about your wisdom and how you cultivate your moral conduct and how you have this mental discipline. And by having wisdom, moral conduct and mental discipline, then you're seen as being more noble. So he tended to cast things that he taught as being noble or the noble one or a noble disciple or the noble community. And he accepted everybody and anybody into this community. There's even stories in the Pali Canon where there was a person who murdered 999 people and the Buddha accepted him in as an ordained practitioner. There was a woman who was a prostitute and the Buddha accepted her into his noble community. He accepted anybody and everybody who was really diligent and dedicated to learning and practicing his teachings. He accepted them into his community to help them grow. And once people attain this level of development in their practice to be in one of these four stages of enlightenment or they've dedicated their life in any particular part of their life to being an ordained practitioner this is what we call the noble community because ordained practitioners are giving up a certain portion of their life to invest in being ordained and really dedicated in a way to follow the path and then anybody, whether they're ordained or a household practitioner that has attained one of these four stages of enlightenment is somebody who's really made a lot of progress. And it's up to these individuals to really help everyone else along the path. If it wasn't for our support, 
to this group of people, then these teachings wouldn't continue to flourish in the world. So the only reason why we have these teachings today is that these teachings have been supported for 2,500 years. So it's the merit that people have created in terms of making donations of time, effort, energy, and resources that have allowed them to continue to progress for 2,500 years until now they've reached you. And any offerings that you might make to have these teachings continue from this point forward is like helping the people behind you that have not yet started learning this path or may not even be born yet. So by you choosing to support these teachings through making generous offerings to ordained practitioners or people who are part of this noble community, it will help these teachings continue and help you to eliminate craving, desire, attachment in the mind, which we're gonna talk more about as we go forward. The merit that we make is based on making offerings of food, water, clothing, shelter, medical care, time, effort, energy, financial support, and different types of resources that we might share with a local temple or ordained practitioners or teachers that are helping you in your practice. This is a way to support the sharing of the Buddhist teachings and ensuring that this noble community has what they need in order to continue to progress in sharing these teachings. Anybody who's sharing these teachings in the world should be set up in such a way that their life is just basically sustained with very basic limited resources. In fact, here in Thailand, there was a famous case about five or six years ago where there was one particular monk who wasn't living that type of life, a very basic, simple life, where in Thailand we know that anybody who's sharing these teachings is going to live a very basic, simple life. And there was an individual who wasn't doing that. And he actually had a private jet. He had all these expensive handbags and suitcases and sunglasses and all these things. And Thai people actually arrested him. And they put him through the court system. And he got a 20-year prison sentence because he was ordained as a monk, but he was not living the life of a monk. He was living very differently. So sometimes there are situations like that and the Thai people take that very seriously and they deal with it. So when you're making offerings or you're choosing to make offerings, it's important that you see this word virtuous. The Buddha, when he talked about making offerings, he always talked about making offerings to virtuous ordained practitioners or virtuous teachers. So virtuous means one who's practicing moral conduct. So you should be able to see in an individual's practice that they are virtuous. So you would think that everybody who's wearing an orange robe and shaves their head must know these teachings very well and must be practicing them very well. Or anybody who wears white and holds classes and things like this, they must be practicing these teachings very well. But you have to look at an individual's practice in order to see is this someone who's virtuous and who's truly practicing in a way to develop their own practice but also are they practicing in a way to guide others to realizing the benefits and the fruit of the attainment of enlightenment and the buddha discusses this in a teaching that's titled the unsurpassed field of merit for the world the buddha talks about this 
in terms of helping you to see the type of practitioners that you should make offerings to if you choose to make offerings. I would like to read it for you. It's just one of the many words of the Buddha that I'm going to be sharing today. And here's where the Buddha is explaining what I just explained to you. But the Buddha is explaining it in his way. So the title here is An Unsurpassed Field of Merit for the World. So this is a community that he's created in order to help people generate and develop wholesome karma. It starts with saying, Monks, these eight persons are worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of reverential salutation, an unsurpassed field of merit for the world. What eight? The stream enterer, the one practicing for realization of the fruit of stream entry, the once returner, the one practicing for the realization of the fruit of once returning, the non-returner, the one practicing for the realization of the fruit of non-returning, the arahant, the one practicing for the realization of the fruit of arahantship. These eight persons, monks, are worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of reverential salutation, an unsurpassed field of merit for the world. The four practicing the way and the four established in the fruit, this is the upright community, composed in wisdom, in virtuous behavior or moral conduct. For people intent on sacrifice, for living beings seeking merit, making merit that ripens in the acquisitions, what is given to the community bears great fruit. Now let me break this down a little bit for you. The first four sentences where he talks about stream entry, once returner, non-returner, and arahant, these are the four stages of enlightenment. He's saying, Anyone who's attained one of these four stages of enlightenment, they are worthy of these gifts. And this is going to produce great fruit for the people who make offerings to them. And then he talks about the four people who are working towards practicing to realize one of the four stages of enlightenment. And by making offerings to these people, the Buddha says this bears great fruit. And let's talk about what that means and how that comes about. There's no mystical, magical thing here, as we've talked about with the natural law of gamma, that this gamma is just the result of our decisions, that there's no mystical, magical thing that's happening if somebody makes an offering of some kind of gift or food or clothing or something like this to one of these individuals. What is actually happening here is that in order for you to be able to make an offering to somebody that's in one of the four stages of enlightenment or somebody practicing to attain one of these four stages of enlightenment, you yourself would have to know a little bit about the four stages of enlightenment to determine if somebody is potentially in one of those four stages of enlightenment or practicing in a way to attain one of those four stages of enlightenment. And then once you have a little bit of that knowledge to be able to discern, not judge, but discern wise decision making, whether this person is truly virtuous or not, then by you observing that in this person and you choosing to make an offering to that person, 
you're going to then come in contact with someone who is a stream enterer, the first stage of enlightenment, or someone who is a once returner, the second stage of enlightenment, the non-returner, the third stage of enlightenment, or the arahant, that person is actually enlightened. So if you're making offerings to somebody who's in one of these four stages of enlightenment or practicing to attain one of these four stages of enlightenment, then you will have had to have some preliminary knowledge to be able to discern that for yourself. And then as you make regular offerings to this person, you're going to come into regular contact with this person, which means that you get an opportunity to ask questions and interact with them and understand these teachings more deeply. So it's the results of your decisions that are leading to this fruit that the Buddha is talking about. This bearing great fruit is that, yes, you need to know about the teachings to be able to discern. You will come into contact with this person in order to make these offerings, but also by making offerings, we're eliminating this stain of selfishness. We're eliminating the unwholesome root of craving, desire, attachment because we're practicing in such a way that we let go and we don't hold on to things in a selfish way, thinking that as we do things in the world and we accumulate certain wealth or we accumulate certain assets or certain things in our life that we just hold on to them for our own selfish benefit. So this is the fruit that the Buddha is talking about when he talks about bearing great fruit. And when he talks about making merit that ripens in the acquisitions, what he's talking about here is you acquiring one of these four stages of enlightenment and the benefits that we talked about in terms of understanding what the four stages of enlightenment are, coming in contact with somebody who is in one of these four stages of enlightenment and working to eliminate craving, desire, attachment by you practicing in a way that you're making generous offerings. Not only are you supporting the Buddhist teachings and helping them to spread in the world through supporting virtuous people who are sharing the teachings in the world in a way that helps others, but it's also helping your practice. This is the cause and effect or the action and result. By you putting out wholesomeness of choosing to practice generosity, what's coming back to you is that you are eliminating this craving, desire, attachment, the cause of discontentedness, and you're getting to interact with individuals who are on this path and much further ahead than you are to be able to then gain understanding of the actual teachings. Going a little bit further into this, talking about what merit is, is practicing merit, we call it generosity. It is generosity, but you need to think of merit as this unique type of generosity in this unique type of wholesome gamma. So let's talk about generosity in general and bring it in a little bit more clear to talk about merit and what exactly that is. Practicing generosity, as I've mentioned, helps the practitioner to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. This is the cause of discontentedness, and it's also the cause of rebirth in the cycle of rebirth. So whether you're practicing to generate merit, where you're sharing generous offerings with one of these people who are in the four stages of enlightenment or that are 
practicing for one of the four stages of enlightenment, this noble community, if you're practicing generosity towards them, it's generating the wholesome gamma that we've talked about in terms of helping you to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, coming in contact with people who are further along on the path than you, and you would have to have a certain foundation to understand these four stages of enlightenment. But also practicing generosity in general, even just sharing with your life partner, your neighbors, your co-workers, your siblings, your family members, other people around you, you can practice generosity with them as well. And we can share our time, effort, energy, and resources. That's generosity that's going to produce wholesome gamma. It's going to help you to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. But this merit that we're talking about, this is a very specific type of generosity. This is a very specific type of wholesome gamma, which both are essentially coming from the same place, which is a generous mind, but one is being directed towards helping the teachings of the Buddha continue to be shared in the world. The other is maybe helping a charity or helping your friends or family or relatives or people around you. And this generosity that you're practicing towards your friends or coworkers or family, it's benefiting you in certain ways as well. It's still helping you to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. And that's also helping you to build close relationships with the people around you. But this other type of generosity that's developing wholesome gamma that we call merit, it's helping you to further your progress on the path in other ways beyond just the elimination of craving, desire, attachment, and beyond eliminating the stain of selfishness that's in the mind. Because in order to make generous offerings to the community of practitioners who are sharing these teachings in the world, there would have to be a certain amount of confidence that you have in the Buddha, the teachings, and the community. You would have had to have progressed to a certain point where you can see and observe the improvement to the condition of the mind based on the teachings that you've been learning and based on what you've been implementing in your life. And in order to be able to be willing to share with this noble community, you would need to have a certain amount of doubt about the teachings that will have needed to be eliminated. Because if you have doubt about the teachings, whether they really truly can lead you to enlightenment or not, why would you ever continue on the path to enlightenment? Because you're not really sure if they will actually produce enlightenment or not. When someone first starts on the path, there's typically some healthy doubt. And this healthy doubt kind of makes the mind be a bit more inquisitive. And by being more inquisitive, it will motivate the mind to investigate the teachings and apply effort and energy to investigate the teachings. But then as you're progressing to a certain point and you've been meditating, you've been learning the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, the three poisons, the natural law of gamma, and you've got this practice underway, you should start noticing this diminishing of discontentedness in the mind that's gradually occurring. Particularly if you're doing the work, if you're doing the work, you should be able to see this and you get to the point ultimately, wherever that is, and everybody is a bit different, where you have no doubt that these teachings are leading you closer and closer to enlightenment. The mind isn't enlightened yet, and you might not fully understand all the teachings yet, 
but a practitioner can get to the point where they're not yet enlightened, but they've removed all doubt that they understand that these teachings are surely leading them closer and closer to enlightenment. This doubt about the teachings and this doubt that is in the mind, it's the second fetter that the Buddha talked about that needs to be eliminated just to be able to get to the first stage of enlightenment. A practitioner wouldn't be able to get to that first stage of enlightenment unless they eliminate the first three fetters. And one of those is doubt. And by making offerings and sharing generously with teachers and ordained practitioners and people who are sharing these teachings and helping you along the path, it's kind of a way that the mind is recognizing and developing further confidence in the Buddha, the teachings in the community, and helping to erode and eliminate any doubt that you might have about the teachings. One of the questions that often comes up when I teach about what is merit is whether merit can be transferred from one person to the other. This is a big misunderstanding that exists in the Buddhist community. There's a lot of people who believe that you can actually transfer the benefits of merit from one person to the next, particularly if somebody's already died, there's this little ceremony that people do in order to pour out water and transfer, at least what they believe, is transferring the benefits of this merit to a dead relative or even somebody who's still alive today. The Buddha taught that this isn't possible. It's not possible to transfer your merit from one person to the other. Because if you understand what merit is, which is this generosity that you're practicing that develops this wholesome gamma or these wholesome results where you're coming into contact with people who are part of that noble community, where you've developed enough wisdom to discern who is part of that noble community, and you're working to practice this generosity in order to eliminate craving, desire, attachment in your own mind, then you understand that you can't transfer those benefits to anyone else. If you're working to eliminate craving, desire, attachment in your mind, you can't transfer that to somebody else by just pouring out a little bit of water in a ceremony. So while you'll see these things happening in temples and in Buddhist communities, and they say that they're transferring the merit of some offering that they've made to their dead relatives or to people that are maybe still alive today, or people will tell you, okay, I donate all my merit to you. This is impossible because the merit that you're creating is reduced craving, desire, attachment, knowledge about the path to enlightenment to discern who's in one of the four stages of enlightenment, and being able to come in contact with somebody by you making offerings that you're now able to talk to that person and gain insight into understanding the teachings further. If you choose to make an offering to somebody in the noble community, the Buddha gives a lot of different teachings about how you might choose to do this. And I decided to share one specific teaching with you to help you understand how you would make this offering and what's important. This is just some very basic things. He shared some other things as well, and that's why there's a whole book, volume 13, devoted to generosity to help you understand more about that. But I thought I would share this bit of basic wisdom that the Buddha is sharing in terms of how to ensure that when you're making an offering, that 
it has six factors. The Buddha says that if you make an offering and has these six factors, it's essentially very well-given gift. It's a purified gift. And three of the factors are for the donor, the person who's making the donation. And three of these factors are based on the person who you're giving the, the gift to or the offering to. And what he says is that when you make an offering, that as a donor, you should be joyful before the giving, before you actually give the gift. You should already have joy in the mind, that there's joy that's there, that it's present. And essentially the willingness to give and that there's joyfulness around the willingness to give. And then when you actually make the offering, as you're making the offering to the individual, the mind should be calm and confident during the act of the actual giving. And then after the giving and the donation has been made, the individual should continue to be joyful afterwards. In other words, not having remorse like, oh, maybe I didn't give enough. I should have gave more or, oh, I gave too much. Why did I give so much? I shouldn't have given so much. So before the offering and after the offering, the donor should have this joy that's present in the mind. And then during the actual offering, the Buddha suggests that an individual is calm and confident as they're actually making the offering. And when he taught this particular teaching, he was speaking to a woman because there was a woman who asked him this question. So he used the word she here and you see that in his words. But then he also gave this woman advice about who to make offerings to. He talks about virtuous individuals, people who are practicing good, wholesome moral conduct. Well, how do we determine in a way that's non-judgmental who is virtuous and who isn't? Well, if we're going to judge somebody, we're usually placing ourselves above somebody or below somebody, looking down at somebody or looking up to somebody. And this is the mind that wants to judge others. But there's a way to practice discernment where you observe somebody's practice and you're not placing yourself above them or below them, but you just kind of recognize their practice and what's going on in their life practice. And that's how you can practice this is not having judgment, but instead practicing discernment or wise decision-making. And the wise decision-making that the Buddha shares is not just making offerings to virtuous individuals, but here he gives three factors. And it's based around the three wholesome roots and the three unwholesome roots. Because to be virtuous, somebody would need to be practicing in a way that they're either free of craving anger and ignorance or they're practicing to remove craving anger and ignorance. Because in doing so, that individual themselves would be practicing the three wholesome roots. You should see in the individual that you're making an offering to you should see generosity, you should see loving kindness, and you should see wisdom because those are the three wholesome roots. If somebody's eliminating or has eliminated craving anger and ignorance, then you'll see generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom because those are the three wholesome roots that are antidoting or remedying these unwholesome roots of craving anger and ignorance. So his words here are that the recipients are free of craving or practicing to remove craving. 
So if you see an individual who has lots and lots and lots of craving, the Buddha is saying, okay, that's not somebody that you should necessarily make offerings to because they're not practicing in a way that is to remove craving or they're not free of craving. So I'll give you some bad examples here that there's occasions where you might visit temples and you might see ordained practitioners smoking cigarettes or you might see them gossiping and using wrong speech. The Buddha is saying these aren't virtuous individuals. These aren't teachers who are practicing in a way that's wholesome. And we're not judging them. We're not looking down on them. But we're realizing that through discernment and wise decision making that they're not practicing in a way for themselves that is of wise decision making. So therefore, if we make offerings to them, we're not supporting the continuation of these good, wholesome teachings. We're supporting the continuation of this craving, perhaps, that they're continuing to indulge in. Or the fifth factor here the Buddha talks about is they are free of anger or are practicing for the removal of anger. So if you observe that your teacher is angry and frustrated and irritated, maybe when they're around animals and animals are around, maybe they're hitting the animals or kicking the animals and dogs or whatever. If you see this kind of thing, then you know that this individual still has ill will in the mind and therefore they're not perhaps virtuous, not that we're looking down on them, we wish them well, we would like to see them improve their practice someday, but by making offerings to that individual, it's not supporting these good, virtuous, wholesome teachers to continue to share these teachings into the world. And then this sixth one, which is really important, is that they are free of ignorance, the unknowing of true reality, or they are practicing to remove ignorance, the unknowing of true reality. So anybody who you make offerings to, the Buddha is saying that you should see wisdom. You should see their willingness to practice that wisdom in terms of their own decision-making within their own life, but also they should be sharing the teachings in a way that's helping others to cultivate wisdom too. They should be able to clearly and concisely articulate the teachings in a way that you understand and that you can incorporate into your life and then practice and experience results based on learning this wisdom from the individuals. So I'd like to pause here because I've said a few things and I'd like to give you guys a chance to ask any questions before we go further in our class today. And the way that you ask questions is put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom and our moderators will see those or you can raise your hand electronically and ask any questions or follow-up questions. Hi, David. So while merit seems to be centered around supporting our teachers, it also seems that it's a large benefit to the giver as well along the path. Is that correct? Yes, it's totally about improving your mind, but also creating merit is to support the teachings of the Buddha as well because in order for us to allow the teachings to continue in the world for our own life, for our own practice, we need to be able to support teachers in our communities. If we enjoy learning these teachings, if we know they're good, wholesome teachings, if we would like to see these teachings continue to be shared in the world, then we need to be able to support the teachers to be able to do that. If we enjoy that teachers are willing to offer teachings at no cost, for free, 
offer resources and classes and retreats and all of these things at no cost. If we like teachers to set up in that way, then we have to do our part to make donations to allow them to be able to do that. In order to share these teachings, there's an enormous amount of time, effort, energy, and resources that a teacher is going to be needed in order to share those teachings. So those resources have to come from somewhere and someone who's given up their career or given up a kind of life in the workforce to be able to dedicate the time, effort, energy, and resources to share these teachings, they're still going to have to buy a little bit of food and water and clothing and shelter and a little bit of medical care and things like this. So if we enjoy being able to benefit from classes and resources and things like this, and we would like to see the world continue to improve through learning these teachings and sharing them in the world, then we need to find ways to be able to support the teachers who are willing to give up any kind of career or business life to then be able to focus on sharing these teachings into the world. And by doing so, it does help you because you're continuing to learn the teachings. The people around you are continuing to learn the teachings and you're benefiting with that elimination of craving, desire, attachment. You're learning the teachings to be able to discern who's in one of these four stages of enlightenment and you're coming in contact with somebody who is in one of these four stages of enlightenment. So therefore, you're going to experience the opportunity to gain more insight and more wisdom so that you can get further along on the path and experience the benefits of the first, second, third, or fourth stage of enlightenment. As we look at the three factors of the donor, as one begins in the path, it, it may be that one doesn't have one of these factors. Would it still be effective to give in these situations? It's best if you have all three of these factors, but if you don't have all of these three and you still make an offering, it's still going to be beneficial for you because just like aversion, when we talked about aversion as part of the three poisons or the three unwholesome roots where a practitioner will oftentimes push people out of their life and then put a wall between you and them, in order to experience something different where you don't have aversion, you don't have anger, and you don't push people out of your life, you've got to break through this wall. And that's a lot of work for some people. Well, the same thing is if somebody has selfishness and they're really hold on to the things that they've acquired in this life really tightly, it can almost feel like a wall between you and, and being able to practice generosity. And it's not really common in some cultures to give and to share with others. And if you don't have these three factors, it's understandable, especially if your mind has been conditioned to hold on to things very tightly and very selfishly. And the only way that you can break through this wall and potentially get to the point where you can practice these three factors is to just give and just give a little bit if that's what you feel comfortable with to any particular people that you think is important to be able to support so that they can continue to share the teachings in the world. And then slowly but surely, as you eliminate this pollution of selfishness, this pollution of craving, desire, attachment in the mind, you can get to the point where you do feel joy and you do have that calmness and confidence and you feel joy after giving as well. And this can be something that you will observe starts to come into the mind more as you get more and more comfortable with practicing generosity. 
One of the things that I would like to share here is something we haven't really talked about much yet. During the lifetime of the Buddha, he taught about training the mind. And this mind is this intangible, non-physical thing. We can't really point to where the mind is. Most people will point to the head. Some people will point to the heart. Some people think of the mind being somewhere else. There's this non-physical mind. And the brain is not the mind, but there's some connection between the mind and the brain. During the lifetime of the Buddha, they couldn't do research on the brain and see what the difference is between someone who meditates and practices these teachings to train the mind and what the effect is on the brain. But today, we're able to do that type of research. And there's people that research this, doctors and scientists and people who are really into understanding meditation and enlightenment. And what they've figured out is that people who are meditating and people who are practicing things like loving kindness and compassion and things like generosity and things like right intention, right speech, right action, all of these things that the Buddha taught is that while we're training this mind, this non-physical mind, as we do, it actually has an effect to the brain, that there's physical changes that are happening to the brain as a result of training the mind. So while the Buddha didn't talk about this in his teachings, I can share with you that I have no doubt that as somebody learns to eliminate selfishness in this pollution of craving, desire, attachment, that there's physical changes that are happening to the brain. And I can go through various things that I've seen from doctors and researchers to show this and explain this. And what they've figured out is that as somebody's making these changes to their life practice and meditating and practicing things like generosity and changes are being made to the brain, these changes are permanent. Once the brain changes in this way, it never reverts back to the way that it was before. And this is the same exact thing that the Buddha talked about when he discussed the mind and training the mind to enlightenment. So even though the Buddha taught 2,500 years ago, now with modern science, more and more and more, modern science is proving that what the Buddha taught 2,500 years ago was 100% accurate, but they're using medical tests, research and technology to prove that the things that he was teaching is actually true. And this is one of those things that through practicing generosity, the mind is going to get trained to eliminate that selfishness and you're going to see these physical changes to the brain that are then permanent so if your mind is polluted with this selfishness and this craving rather than hold on to it and wait for the joy to arise what you're actually doing is you kind of break through that wall and you make the generous offerings and as you do more and more as you go forward in life and you're making regular consistent offerings, then what you'll notice is that as this pollution of selfishness and craving starts to be eradicated from the mind, then you'll see more joy of giving come into the mind. And this is where the mind gets more purified and the brain is making physical changes as well. Thank you, David. Let's get a bus on there. Thanks, James. Well, so uh, did the Buddha nuns or monks accept money as a form of uh, practicing merit? 
During the lifetime of the Buddha, he did not allow the ordained practitioners to accept gold and silver or any kind of currency for their practice. And he gave a long list of other things too. You know, they couldn't accept male or female slaves. They couldn't accept animals. They couldn't accept various offerings. They could only accept essentially food, water, clothing, shelter, and medical supplies. That's all they could accept. Because during the lifetime of the Buddha, they could live in a community of people and be supported that way. Nowadays, it would be impossible for people to practice in a way that didn't involve some amount of financial support because we need to print things like books, we need to have Zoom, we need to have live streaming, we need to have computers and lights and microphones and money kind of helps to facilitate the things that we need to use in order to share these teachings in the world. During the lifetime of the Buddha, they just needed to sustain their life. And then by sustaining their life, they were in a village or in a town. And then that town would ask them to teach and then they would teach to a certain grouping of people. But today, we oftentimes use money in order to just kind of get on a bus and go somewhere or to buy a little bit of food or to buy a little bit of clothing. So the reason why the Buddha didn't allow the ordained practitioners to have gold or silver or land or these other things is because that would allow the mind to potentially have craving, desire, attachment and be sharing the teachings for the wrong reasons that perhaps they would be sharing the teachings in order to accumulate wealth and their mind would have this craving, desire, attachment to accumulating wealth which would inhibit them from attaining enlightenment and would be the wrong reasons to be sharing these teachings. So by eliminating that and living in a time frame where it was possible to eliminate that, it helped those people to be able to attain enlightenment. But today, the ordained practitioners and others, even though the Buddha taught not to have money, there are ordained practitioners and nowadays we accept that, okay, we give a little bit of money to teachers and ordained practitioners and others because this helps them in their life to acquire the things that they need to acquire because you're not always going to be with them to be able to get on a bus and pay the bus for them. During the lifetime of the Buddha, there weren't buses. You just walk down the street. Or nowadays, you know, you might be traveling somewhere and you need to purchase a, a meal and there's not necessarily going to be someone there to buy the meal for you. So you have to buy it yourself. Where during the lifetime of the Buddha, everywhere they went, there was always people around and they would always feed essentially these ordained practitioners and teachers to ensure that they had food. So they were well looked after during the lifetime of the Buddha, where today we kind of live a little bit more of an independent life. We're having a little bit of financial support helps an individual to be able to share the teachings in a way that sustains their life, but also allows them to do things like books and Zoom and lights and microphones and computers and all the other things we need to be able to share these teachings in the world. And this is an adjustment and modification that people have accepted based on the way modern society and modern times are. So among these different forms of practicing generosity or producing merit, is there any priority among uh, uh, practicing generosity with money, time, and effort? 
in terms of time, effort, energy, and financial resources or resources, there's no priority. When the Buddha taught about wealth, he taught about accumulating wealth, and that's something that household practitioners are going to end up doing. But he also talked about how to use that wealth in righteous ways or in wholesome ways. And he gives a discourse on how we should use our wealth once we acquire it. And the first point that he makes is that you should be sure that you're taken care of, that you have food, water, clothing, shelter, and medical supplies. Because if you're not taken care of, then you can't be out there donating all that you have to other people because you need to take care of yourself. And he also talks about taking care of your life partner and your children. He talks about taking care of your workers, your employees, people who are supporting you in life. He talks about taking care of your relatives and making sure your relatives are well taken care of. And he talks about and he gives different categories and he actually puts himself as last. And he says, okay, once all of these other things are taken care of, essentially you found the middle way with all these other things, that would be an appropriate time if you would like to make an offering or a gift to him that you would be able to do that. And I think this is really amazing about how he taught and it shows his own disinterest in money and wealth. Because remember, he was already super wealthy. He was part of a royal family. So he wore these rags and he walked around barefoot and he accepted whatever food was given to him on the street rather than these amazing meals that he got in the royal palace. So he was stepping down away from all of that royal riches. So he wasn't interested in acquiring money for his own benefit in order to share these teachings in the world. He had already given up all of that stuff and he knew those things didn't lead to enlightenment. And that's why anybody who is in one of these four stages of enlightenment and anybody who's seriously sharing these teachings in a way to benefit you, you shouldn't see them wearing Rolex watches, driving around in a Lamborghini. You shouldn't see them wearing you know, high dollar clothing. Not that there's anything wrong with those things. There's plenty of people who use those things in their life. But anybody who's trained their mind to the point of getting close to enlightenment, they should already understand that those things aren't what leads to peacefulness in this life. And they won't be using any kind of financial resources that they've acquired to purchase this Rolex watch or these high dollar clothes because what they're more interested in doing is sustaining their own life and then using the resources being offered to them in order to share the teachings into the world. So you should see them just having a very basic living and then sharing themselves because even a Buddha himself is going to practice generosity. Even an enlightened being is going to continue to practice generosity. So if you think about the Buddha teaching for 45 years, giving up his life, his life of luxury, that takes an enormous amount of generosity to be willing to do that. It also takes an enormous amount of loving kindness and compassion to be able to do that. So even a Buddha, an enlightened being, these people are still practicing generosity as part of their practice because that's what led them to the results of enlightenment. So they're not going to just stop practicing something like generosity once the mind is enlightened. So anybody who you choose to support, you should 
observe their own practice, that they are practicing generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. And because of that, you being able to support them in whatever ways that you can, finding that middle way with your time, effort, energy, and resources, ensuring that you're not holding on to things really tightly, but ensuring that you're also not blowing it off and not feeling like you need to be generous at all and just kind of accepting all the teachings and kind of, aha, look what I've got. I'm just going to take all these teachings because this isn't going to create the change in your mind. If you're holding on to your own resources, time, effort, energy, and resources selfishly with craving, desire, attachment, or you're just kind of loosely sharing everything and anything under the sun that you get, then you're not going to have the resources that you need for your own life. But by holding on to your resources so tightly, you're also not going to see the changes in your practice where you're eliminating craving, desire, attachment, and training the mind to experience these changes where the mind can now be more generous and giving and sharing to people around you. Thanks, Tishon. No more questions. All right. So what this builds into is it builds into what we call the way of practice. And the Buddhist teachings are kind of grouped in different ways depending on what we're talking about. So there's all these different teachings that the Buddha shared, and then we kind of group them based on what we're talking about. So when we talk about the way of practice, we're talking about kind of how does this whole bus move forward, that these individuals who are struggling in life and having difficulty in life, how does this bus of people get to enlightenment? What's the oil that greases the wheels? What's the gasoline that gets put into the engine? You know, what is it that moves this bus forward? Well, that's what we call the way of practice. And this is what moves your bus forward. This is how you progress in your practice. This is your way of practice. And it, it's listed in this certain order for a reason. The very first thing is generosity. And through practicing generosity and ensuring that there's offerings made to teachers and temples and ordained practitioners, people who are in those four stages of enlightenment, then we're bringing into our community people who have the wisdom to be able to help this community to share the teachings. So practicing generosity is kind of like putting the oil or the gasoline into the bus to allow it to move forward. And as this bus is moving forward in your own life, what you're learning is you're learning moral conduct. That moral conduct of the Eightfold Path helps you to improve your practice, where you're practicing things like right speech, right action, and right livelihood to ensure that you're not causing harm to others. So therefore, you experience this blossoming of your personal and professional relationships, and you start experiencing more growth in your personal and professional relationships. And what you're also getting in terms of this way of practice is you're learning this meditation and this mental discipline and how to train the mind to have this mental discipline. And that's going to, once again, help you to improve your life practice and see your personal and professional relationships blossom. But you wouldn't be able to get to that moral conduct and meditation or this mental discipline in your life if we didn't practice generosity. If somewhere along the line in the last 2,500 years, if people just stopped practicing generosity, then we wouldn't actually have the teachings today. 
And if people just stopped practicing generosity in their own life practice, they would never be able to get to this moral conduct in this meditation or this mental training, this mental discipline to be able to improve your life practice and improve the condition of the life. So this generosity is really important to practice in order to support the sharing of the teachings. That's what we call merit. But it's also important to practice generosity in your private life as well, that with your friends, family, coworkers, different people around you, that you practice generosity. And just to be very, very clear about what these three things are, I provided some definitions that will help you to understand what these three things are. What generosity is, is practicing the giving and helping of others on an ongoing, consistent way to develop this comprehensive life practice where you're regularly helping others on a consistent, ongoing basis. It doesn't mean that every day you need to run out and ensure you're helping somebody, but you need to have this kind of general way of practice where you're just interested in seeing others be well because you're practicing loving kindness. You have this intention of harmlessness and not interested in seeing others be harmed. So you're willing to help others with your time, effort, energy, and resources. So if you walk outside and you've got 10 or 20 minutes and you're just kind of moving to your car on your way out the door and you notice your neighbor drops a bag of groceries or trash got blown over their yard, why not help them if you have the time to be able to do that rather than be into our own selfish desires and just with our blinders on and looking forward to do the things that we want to do, why not spend five minutes to help somebody if we can, if that's possible in that situation? Or if we see a situation where we can be helpful to people or share something, having some action that develops this and cultivates this caring and compassionate mind where you consistently are interested in helping others and giving and sharing your time, effort, energy, and resources. But at the same time, be sure that a certain amount of that is directed towards the continuation and sharing of the Buddhist teachings. What generosity is about is having this readiness and willingness to take action, to frequently give something more than is strictly necessary your time, effort, energy, financial support, and any kind of resources. Anybody who's sharing these teachings into the world, it's part of our practice that we don't ask for offerings. We don't ask for donations. That second precept that the Buddha talked about, about awaiting what is given. This is why in a Buddhist temple, or if you go learn at a retreat with a teacher who's really sharing these teachings in the way that the Buddha taught, there's not going to be a basket that comes around and ask people to donate or there's not going to be the teacher themselves asking people to donate to them because we just await what is given. We understand the natural law of gamma and as we put out wisdom and we help people as we're generous and we are generous with our resources and our time and our effort, we know that as people become more and more awake, and they start practicing the teachings more closely, they, if they choose, and they're finding value in what's being shared, they will then choose to practice generosity if and when they would like to do that. And there's no expectation from the actual teacher that students should make offerings, but 
we practice in a way that we don't have any expectation of an offering and that we're not craving or desiring our students to make offerings and that we're not motivated by offerings. We're not motivated by financial support and by money. That instead, we're interested in seeing our students progress on this path to enlightenment and money and wealth shouldn't be an obstacle. So we practice in a way that we treat everybody equally. If people are making offerings or they're not making offerings, we practice in a way that we share our time, effort, energy with people that benefit them and help them get closer and closer to enlightenment. And that's the way that a teacher should be practicing if you see them practicing virtuous moral conduct. What moral conduct is about is having this virtuous behavior where we're holding or acting upon higher principles of proper conduct. And this moral conduct, the Buddha taught as part of the Eightfold Path in right speech, right action, and right livelihood. So you should see anybody who you might choose to make offerings to in order to generate merit, this special type of wholesome gamma, that they should be practicing moral conduct. And then as a result of their moral conduct, you should then be able to learn from them the wisdom of how to practice that moral conduct, which then benefits you. Same thing with meditation, that in order to improve one's moral conduct and improve one's wisdom, there would need to be a certain meditation practice that is well established. And through you learning with an individual who has developed their practice really well, you should then be able to learn meditation with them, which is a active, dedicated, independent, purposeful training session where you're either eliminating or cultivating certain qualities in the mind. And this was what will help you move this bus forward and get you closer and closer to enlightenment by practicing generosity, practicing moral conduct, and practicing meditation. Let me see what questions you guys have on this before we go forward and look at some more of the Buddha's words. We have a question from Jan on Facebook. I have friends who grew up as Buddhists and who invite me to go to their temple with them. They participate in the ceremony you mentioned to transfer merit to dead relatives. They have encouraged me to also do this. I am shy and do not participate and they accept that. It confuses me, however, how to regard this part of my life. May I continue to accompany my friends and stay positive about this? Is this a problem for me? Sure, you can do anything that you would like to do in the world. You know, there's no rules, there's no commandments that are part of the Buddhist teachings. It's all about guidance and it's all about you understanding the wisdom of what leads to enlightenment. So even though you might be sitting in a facility where other people are pouring out this water and they believe that they're transferring their merit, as long as you understand that that's not what leads to enlightenment and that's not possible, then your practice and the condition of your mind, you're seeing true reality. And you can still participate with people. You can still be involved in these kind of situations. But just be sure that your mind is very clear, and it sounds like it is, that these things are not what leads to enlightenment, and it's not what the Buddha actually taught. Well, it looks like we have a question from quarantine. So let's go ahead and go to quarantine now. Sure. Um, so maybe we will talk about these two uh, later, but 
one day in a text I find that uh, the Buddha said, or maybe said, that um, one of the greatest merits that we can do is that practicing impermanence and seeing all things being impermanent. I don't know if it's one of the Theravada, uh, Theravada texts or Pali Canon texts. Yes, I talk about this in this chapter and in the book where the Buddha talks about wholesome gamma and the two highest quality of wholesome gamma that you can produce is the first one is practicing breathing mindfulness meditation. Meditating on the perception of impermanence is what you're discussing. And then the second one is practicing loving kindness meditation. So in terms of wholesome gamma, wholesome results, decisions that you can make that lead to some wholesome result, practicing breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness are the two highest qualities of wholesome gamma that you can generate because by you training your own mind, you're now reducing the pollution in the mind. You're not causing harm in the world. You're closer and closer to enlightenment as you walk forward training the mind. So that would be how to produce the highest quality of wholesome gamma. And then in terms of merit and being able to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, in terms of coming in contact with people that are practicing and in these four stages of enlightenment, in terms of removing that fetter of doubt about the teachings, that's where practicing merit comes in. So instead of thinking about it as doing one thing or the other, you need to think about it as doing all of these things, but keeping in mind that, yes, these two meditations are the two highest quality of wholesome gamma that you can generate or wholesome results that you will experience from your decisions. I was wondering, David, if one has very limited means, can this be an impediment on the path or toward merit? And do you have any advice for what in that situation? This is another misunderstanding that I clarify in this chapter is that Oftentimes in Buddhist communities, people feel like you have to be rich or wealthy to make these huge, enormous offerings in order to create this massive amount of merit. And if you don't do that, you won't be able to get to enlightenment. This is actually not true. The Buddha's words, he talks about this. He talks about people that make these enormous, enormous offerings. And he goes through all this detail about these enormous offerings that people can make in terms of food and other things like that. And then the Buddha ultimately gets to what we were just talking about with quarantine is that he says, okay, all these amazing offerings, the highest quality offering that you can actually make in terms of producing wholesome gamma in your life is practicing breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation. So if somebody was lacking finances and they found that they had very little money for their own life, then the best things you can be doing is learning the teachings of the Buddha to gain this wisdom and be doing things like meditation. That's going to help you. But then also, if you experience that you have some time that you can offer to a ordained practitioner or a teacher or to a temple to maybe donate some of your time or effort or energy, you can offer those kind of things in order to help people to generate this merit and this wholesome results where you're making offerings to be able to continue the sharing of these teachings in the world. So it doesn't always come down to actual money. In fact, some people offer to teachers, they offer books or 
they will offer food, or if they have a special project going on, they might offer some support for that special project that can be time, effort, energy, or financial support if they have that. But you don't need to be rich and wealthy to attain enlightenment. And you don't need to make these big, enormous offerings of you know countless thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. You always need to find that middle way where you have your own life taken care of and you're ensuring that you and the people around you are whole, but also you need to be sure that you're practicing in a way that you practice generosity, that you're not holding on with craving, desire, attachment to every last thing that you make and you're not having this selfishness that's coming over the mind and kind of obsessing the mind. On the flip side of that, is there anything unwholesome about having excess money, having wealth? Is that in any way an impediment on the path? Having wealth isn't an impediment on the path, but it can be challenging if somebody kind of structures their life around acquiring wealth and they see that part of their self-identity is being wealthy. There's rich people who are enlightened. There's people who have less money who are enlightened as well. But what's important is that the mind doesn't have this craving, desire, attachment for money. Oftentimes in society, we tend to like to view money as kind of being dirty or unwholesome. But in reality, from my experience, when I was in business and I was making good money, what I realized is by having more money, I could actually help more people. I was able to help people in ways that I could have never helped them had I not had access to the resources that I had. So it's not about the accumulation of wealth. It's about how do you accumulate your wealth in terms of a right livelihood and what do you do with the wealth once you accumulate it? And then do you allow the mind to have craving, desire, attachment and holding on to the wealth and then having arrogance and ego and having self-identity around the wealth? You know, are you stingy? Are you hoarding the wealth? That's where you can run into problems for yourself. We shouldn't look at wealth as being dirty or, or wrong, but we also shouldn't look at it as something that we should aspire for necessarily that that's somehow going to instantly solve all of our problems because wealth isn't going to instantly solve all your problems. I mean, if you've looked at anybody who's say won the lottery, if they've won like $200 million, you know, they went from a very low paying job to winning $200 million like overnight. And a lot of these people tell you that their life was actually better before they actually had the money. If money is what leads to this ultimate peacefulness and happiness, then all wealthy people would be utterly peaceful and happy, but that's not what we see. So there's no harm in acquiring wealth, but you have to be sure that you understand that that's not going to be the source of your peacefulness and of your joy, that that's a condition. And if we base our inner feelings on this impermanent condition, then we're just setting ourselves up to fail. Thank you. Those are all the questions for now. All right. So let's move into the next thing that I had planned to share with you, which is more of the Buddha's words. Here the Buddha is talking in this long discourse, and I just grabbed this little piece of it, where he talks about how to practice accomplishment and generosity. How do you know that you're actually practicing generosity 
in a good, wholesome way in terms of just this accomplishment and generosity. And he gives a lot of different teachings around this because it's such an important topic and much more than I was able to cover in this first volume in this chapter 10. So that's why there's a whole book devoted to it in volume 13. But here, what he's saying in this particular teaching is he says, you know, in what is accomplishment and generosity? Here, a noble disciple resides at home with a mind free from the stain of selfishness, freely generous, open-handed, joyful in letting go, devoted to charity, joyful in giving and sharing. This is called accomplishment and generosity. So when we're growing up as kids, most of us are taught to kind of give and share, right? We're taught to share our toys, but we're not really taught why. Well, the reason why is because if we allow selfishness to settle in the mind, it's this stain that the Buddha is talking about. It's this pollution that holding on to things really tightly and being selfish, we're going to find that it's very difficult to interact in the world and we're not going to have this joy. We're not going to have this joyfulness and this giving and sharing with others. So by training the mind to reside without this selfishness and being willing to freely share, then we can experience this joy in letting go and not holding on to things really tightly. So this is an important one to understand, and it's just one small portion of a larger teaching. And then the Buddha actually talks about his own experience with giving and sharing. He talks about it in different times in his teachings. At one time, he actually talks about the whole reason why he actually attained enlightenment as a Buddha, the main factor is because of his generosity, his generosity in that life and generosity in his previous lives. He talks about that as being a main factor that actually led to his enlightenment, being able to attain enlightenment on his own as an actual Buddha, that it was generosity that led to that. But then he also talks here helping people understand some of the results that he's experienced, but he does it in very subtle ways. And you need to look at all of his other teachings to really understand more of what he talks about in terms of the benefits or the fruits of giving and sharing and practicing generosity. But here he gives just kind of a small little glimpse into generosity and how it's really helped him to attain enlightenment. The title of this is titled, If Beings Knew the Results of Giving and Sharing. Monks, if beings knew, as I know, the results of giving and sharing, they would not eat without having given, nor would the stain of selfishness obsess them and take root in their minds. Even if it were their last bite, their last mouthful, they would not eat without having shared it, if there was someone to share it with. But because beings do not know, as I know, the results of giving and sharing, they eat without having given, and the stain of selfishness obsesses them and takes root in their mind. So what the Buddha is talking about here is that the reason why he was able to attain enlightenment and an important factor of his enlightenment is the fact that he eliminated this selfishness through 
practicing generosity, of giving and sharing with people around him. And because he understands the results of that, which is the enlightened mind, he understands how peaceful, calm, serene, content, and joyful the enlightened mind is. So he understands the results of giving and sharing in this generosity. And he wouldn't imagine even eating a meal if it was his last bite as long as there was somebody to share it with, he would be willing to share it because he knows what that leads to. He knows the benefits and the results of what that leads to. But because other people don't know what enlightenment is like and they don't understand the utter peaceful, calm, serene, content mind with joy that the enlightened mind and the enlightened being is experiencing, then what he says is, beings allow this stain of selfishness to obsess the mind and take root in the mind. And it's not until we break through that and we let go of that selfishness that we start to experience the fruit and the benefit of having this joy and giving and sharing and experiencing the results of it. So this is an important teaching to understand from the perspective of the Buddha. And then he talks about five benefits of giving. And these are just some basic teachings that I've taken out of the Pali Canon. As I mentioned, there's a whole lot around this, but I thought these are really important. So I put them into chapter 10 and I brought them into today's class so that you can understand from the Buddhist perspective of why did he teach generosity and why is it so important? You know, we've already covered that, talking about the elimination of craving, desire, attachment, and some of the other things we've discussed. But here are some other benefits beyond what we've been talking about so far. This is titled The Five Benefits of Giving. Monks, there are these five benefits of giving. What five? One, one is dear and agreeable to many, right? Because if you're making offerings and you're being generous to people, then you're going to be agreeable to people. People are going to see you as being very kind and generous and loving. And not that you're buying your friends, but you're showing people that you're willing to share. And then because you're willing to share, people are going to be willing to share with you as well. You shouldn't share because you want other people to share, but just know that as you do share, that more people will be willing to share with you. Two, wholesome persons go in large numbers to one. So if you're sharing and you're generous, you're going to see wholesome people are going to be more attracted to you. This is part of one's practice that as you practice generosity, it will tend to culminate into more and more wholesome people coming around you. Three, one acquires a wholesome reputation, right? So your reputation in the community in terms of your friends and your business colleagues, as you practice generosity, it's going to help you to develop this wholesome reputation. One is not deficient in the householder's duties. So a householder is someone who's learning and practicing these teachings in the house. They're not ordained. They're living in the home. So by living in the home and living as the Buddha talked about open-handedly, working to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, and being joyful and giving and letting go, then you're not deficient in your responsibilities as living a household life that you're willing to share with your neighbors or 
share with friends or you have a guest come over to your house, you're willing to share food and drinks and uh, your home with them. Number five, with the breakup of the body after death, one is reborn in a good destination, in a heavenly world. So the Buddhist teachings has this aspect to it of the cycle of rebirth. And anybody who's awakened to the point that they've been able to see their past lives, then they know that the cycle of rebirth is 100% true. But for someone who hasn't experienced that, you don't necessarily know that these other realms are actually the truth or not. But you don't necessarily need to know that they're the truth in order to learn and practice to improve the condition of the mind today. The Buddha taught about these other realms because it's part of the natural laws of existence. So he needed to teach these five realms. But always keep in mind that whenever you see him teaching about a rebirth in a heavenly realm or a rebirth in the lower realms like hell or animal or afflicted spirits, the goal of his teachings is for people not to be reborn. So while he shares this as part of his teachings, he's not using it as a threat or a fear. He's not using it as a carrot on a stick to dangle. He's just sharing with you the truth of true reality of what truly is going to happen or what isn't going to happen. Because remember, he didn't need to convince people to give him money because he already had lots of money. If he was interested in retaining money and retaining wealth, he would have remained being the prince or when he attained enlightenment, he would have went back to being the prince or the king. So he wasn't interested in trying to convince people to give him money. He was just sharing with people about what would happen in terms of practicing generosity. And here in this fifth benefit, he's explaining that through practicing generosity, one is likely to be reborn in a better destination, even in a heavenly world. The reason why is because of the elimination of craving, desire, attachment. It's craving, desire, attachment that creates rebirth. If there's craving, desire, attachment at the end of this life, there will be rebirth. But as you minimize more and more and more craving, desire, attachment in the mind, you actually improve your next rebirth if you're going to be reborn into a future life. And remember, the goal is always to learn, reflect, and practice in this life so that you attain enlightenment and you don't experience rebirth. But should you fall short of that for any reason, the Buddha is saying a person who is generous, i.e. has eliminated more and more craving, desire, attachment, then they're going to experience a better rebirth in their next life. That's what this fifth one is all about. These are the five benefits of giving. By giving, one becomes dear one follows the duty of the wholesome. The wholesome mentally disciplined monks always go in large numbers to one. They teach one the teachings that dispel all discontentedness, having understood which the taintless one here attains nibbana or enlightenment. So here the Buddha is saying that, okay, if you make offerings to the ordained practitioners, they're going to be available for you to be able to share these teachings into your community. If it wasn't for these generous offerings to be able to support the teachers in our communities, then these teachings wouldn't be able to come into our communities. And what this last sentence is saying is they teach one the teachings. So by you making offerings, 
then you're coming in contact with somebody who can share these teachings with you. And it's these teachings that dispel all discontentedness. That's what trains your mind to eliminate discontentedness. Having understood these teachings, which the taintless, taintless is lacking pollution, that the mind has been purified. There's no longer any pollution in the mind. So once there's no longer pollution in the mind, one attains enlightenment, right? And that's what generosity is motivating through having this practice of generosity to create merit. We bring these teachings into our community. We learn this moral conduct. We learn this meditation, this mental discipline, and this improves our life and our personal and professional relationships. And then this life just continues to blossom as we progress closer and closer to enlightenment. So that's what he's sharing here in this teaching. And then the very last thing that I was going to share with you today, and it's in the words of the Buddha, is helping you to understand his perspective on the teachings and how important the actual teachings are and sharing these teachings into the world, how important that is. The title of this one is Gifts of Teachings is Superior More Than Gifts of Material Things. Monks, there are these two kinds of gifts, a gift of material things and a gift of the teachings. Of these two kinds of gifts, this is supreme, a gift of the teachings. So here he's saying, if someone was to give you some material object or they were to give you this gift of these teachings, that it's the teachings that is the most supreme gift that anybody could ever give you. Because this material object, right? If I gave you this cup or if I gave you a mobile phone or I gave you a car or I gave you a house, that is insignificant compared to someone who gives you the gift of these teachings because by you learning and practicing these teachings to improve the condition of the mind, now your mind can eliminate this discontentedness, get to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy and no longer experience any discontentedness. If you can get to that, that is the most supreme gift that you could ever get is the gift of these teachings. Who cares about the house? Who cares about the car? Who cares about the mobile phone? It's this gift of the teachings that is going to improve the condition of the mind and the condition of your life in ways that you could never even think of until you actually progress to enlightenment and see what the real experience of enlightenment is really like. Denise shares this. There are these two kinds of sharing, sharing of material things and sharing of the teachings. Of these two kinds of sharing, this is supreme, sharing of the teachings. Same thing that we were just talking about. There are these two kinds of assistance, assistance with material things and assistance with the teachings. Of these two kinds of assistance, this is supreme, assistance with the teachings. So here he's reinforcing over and over again how important these teachings are to benefit someone's life and to benefit all of humanity, essentially, that through having access to these teachings, these teachings can then benefit people in the world to eliminate discontentedness. And unless we practice generosity to produce this merit, then these teachings don't continue in the world. 
And that's where I would like to just kind of end things with you today and see what questions you guys have about this whole practice of merit. If you have questions about how to practice or where to practice or you know what type of gifts you might decide to offer to somebody, I'm pleased to be able to answer any of those kind of questions for you. Let's start off with a question from quarantine. In order to make a living, I, I talk about my experience, in order to make a living, I helping people to manage their anger. And I'm trying to bring those teaching and the teaching of the Buddha into um, well, into my uh, uh, advice, but I'm not a teacher and I'm not fully awakened and I'm not, I uh, attain enlightenment yet. But is that a gift? Is that um, creating walls on karma? If you're sharing the teachings without any expectation of anything in return, yes, it's creating wholesome karma. But it's important to understand the difference between wholesome gamma and merit, right? I'm combining these two in today's class because merit is a particular type of wholesome gamma. But be sure that you understand that in that situation, you are not practicing merit. You're sharing the teachings to help others. And if those people are paying you for that, then that's just a service that you're offering for payment. But if you're doing it on a donation basis or you're doing it out of the kindness of your heart without any donations even at all, then yes, you're practicing generosity, you're practicing loving kindness, and you're practicing wisdom. But if you're accepting payment for the teachings that you're sharing, then you're not practicing generosity, you're just performing a job or performing a role. So it's not but um, practicing that and practicing my, the job then, uh, it's still not possible to do it with generosity. And I mean, I, I do it, of course, as much as possible with a mind of loving kindness and generosity, but this is not, this is not practicing merit, right? No, what merit would be is merit would be that you're making offerings to a member of that noble community, the first, second, third, and fourth stage of enlightenment. And you're making those offerings because teachings are coming to you and benefiting you. So therefore, you would like to support these teachings to continue in the world. That's what merit is. What you're practicing, it sounds like, is you're charging a fee for people to learn certain teachings from you. And this is, this is a job. This isn't a practice of generosity. This is, you know, you're providing a service for a fee. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. We've learned about the benefits of merit and generosity. I was wondering, when we give, how much should we be thinking about these benefits? And at what point does our giving, in some sense, become a selfish act if we're thinking too much about the benefits? Yeah, I w would understand what the benefits are, understand that they're there. And like I mentioned, there's a whole lot more to learn on this topic. That's why there's a whole book devoted to it. But you shouldn't be making offerings with the expectation of benefits. Know that they're there and know that the Buddha taught generosity and giving with your own hand. And he gave us this guidance in order to help us understand how to practice and develop merit and how to practice generosity. And there is going to be benefits for you in creating, generating merit and for you to practice generosity. But 
those three factors that the Buddha talked about, joyful before giving, calm and confident while giving, and then joyful after giving, those are the three things that you should be focusing on as you make offerings to create merit. These other benefits that are going to happen as a result, know that they're there, know that that's what is there, but I wouldn't focus on that because if we make an offering either to create merit or we're just practicing generosity with our neighbor and we've got some expectation, then it's not generosity. If we've got an expectation of getting something in return, then there's still craving desire attachment there. So if I help my neighbor to clean off their yard of trash that's been blown over their yard and I'm only doing that because I expect that when that happens to me, they're going to help me also, then that's not generosity because there's still craving desire attachment there. So that action, that decision is now tainted. It's now polluted and it's not generosity. It's craving desire attachment. I'm only performing this act because of this craving desire attachment. So when you're practicing pure generosity, there should be no expectation of anything in return that's coming back to you. And that's where you get to the wholesome root that you have no expectation whatsoever. You're just giving for the sake of giving. Of course, it does take resources and to live and to share the teachings. I was wondering what motivated the Buddha to share the teachings without expecting anything in return. I can only speak from my own perspective. I can't really say the one thing that the Buddha said that the reason why he shared the teachings is he said that he shared these teachings out of compassion for all beings. Compassion is concern for the misfortune of others. So once somebody experiences enlightenment and you experience this peaceful, calm, serene and content mind with joy, and you realize that you've been able to accomplish that by putting together these teachings, your mind is so utterly peaceful, so joyful that you look out at the world and all you see is, I shouldn't say all you see, but you see a lot of hostility. You see a lot of aggression. You see a lot of anger. You see a lot of frustration. And you know these beings are causing it all themselves, but yet they're blaming each other for causing it, right? You still see the positive things. You still see the charity and the goodness and others. You see all of that, but you also see all of this despair and all this misery in the world. And for a Buddha to accomplish this goal of attaining enlightenment where their mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, and they know that they have accomplished that, they have so much loving kindness, they have so much compassion, and they also have so much generosity, which led to their actual attainment of enlightenment as a Buddha. Now, the next thing in their life is, okay, well, I figured this out. Now, let me share it with others out of compassion for them, out of concern for their misfortune, out of interest in seeing them be well and aspiring for their welfare. And that's why I share the teachings, because I know that I struggled for 44, 45 years in this world trying to live and struggle and having all kinds of difficulties and having all kinds of misery and challenges and despair and sure there's plenty of fun times intermingled in there as well but once you experience that liberation of mind then 
for me at least, I felt like the best thing that I could do is offer these teachings back to help people to experience that same liberation of mind. But not everyone who attains enlightenment is going to end up being a teacher. You know, we need business people who are enlightened. We need politicians who are enlightened. We need community leaders who are enlightened. We need taxi drivers who are enlightened. We need janitors and housekeepers and retired people. We need all kinds of people through all segments of our population, all different economic backgrounds, all different social backgrounds, all different walks of life to experience enlightenment. And this is how each individual person's life improves. But this is also how all of humanity and all of society improves as well. I was wondering, are there any specific ways that we can generate merit and support your generous offering of the teachings? So for me, I have created a life for myself that I live very basically, very simple living. And being here in Thailand, it doesn't really take much money for me to survive because things here are very inexpensive. And I was fortunate in the way that I used to live my life before that I was a businessman and I had wealth and I had lots of wealth and cars and houses and businesses and things like this. So I used that in order to, for example, purchase this house for my wife and my son so that we don't have to pay a mortgage and we don't have to pay rent and we live a very basic, simple life here in Thailand. So a very little bit of money being donated to me helps me to pay for food and water and clothing. And if I need any kind of medicines or things like this, it helps me to sustain my life. And it also helps me to pay for things like Zoom and the different resources online that I use in order to stream and live stream. Helps me to pay for things like computer, microphone, lights, and things like that. So on our website, we have it set up where people can share and make an offering to be able to help me to sustain my life so that I can not have to focus on a career and running a business, which I got rid of those things a long time ago. Instead, I can just focus all my time on servicing you and being a support to help you on this path to enlightenment. So that's one thing. Uh, There's two other things that I have going on right now that any offerings that are coming in can contribute to, which is I'm looking to put these books into audiobook format. So the very first book that I wrote, I did an audiobook for it and students made offerings to be able to support me to be able to go to a local recording studio and record that into an audiobook. So this first book I'm going to be recording once there's enough offerings to be able to support it. So I'm willing to spend the time, effort, energy and resources to do the recording but I need people to be able to support the purchase of the sound studio and the engineer to be able to record the audiobook. And then that offering that somebody would make, it would come right back to you in terms of you'll be able to have this audiobook because I'm going to be giving it away for free, just like I do all the resources that I share. But I need a bit of cash to be able to do that. And any kind of offerings that people share help me to do that. And my intention is to record all 13 books into audiobook format and give them all away at no cost because I'm investing my time, effort, energy, and resources, but I just need a a bit of support to be able to pay for the, the sound studio. And 
Luckily, here in Thailand, that is also very inexpensive, because this book, this first one, if I were to record this in America, it would be about six or eight thousand dollars to be able to record it into an audio book. Here in Thailand, it's only fourteen hundred dollars, so it's very little compared to if I was living in America. And then, as I record each book, I'll release them one by one. So that's the second project that I've got going on. And then the third one is one that some of you guys know about, which is we're looking to do a retreat in America coming up in June this summer, 2022. And if you make any offerings to that, it will allow me to actually come and share these teachings with you guys. So any offerings that you make to me, it's coming right back to you by way of allowing me to come teach in America, allowing me to give you these audiobooks for free, and allowing me to have just a little bit of money to sustain my life and be able to accomplish the things that I need to accomplish in terms of food, water, clothing, uh, medical supplies, and our shelter. You know, we have a little bit of electric and water that we have to pay, a community fee and things like that. But luckily my wife is also working, so she's able to cover some of those expenses for me. So those are the three main things that any money that would be donated to me would be really helpful. And essentially by you helping me, that help comes right back to you by way of me being able to share these teachings with you. Thank you very much, David, for letting us know about those exciting developments and really showing us where any donations would be going and how they would be going right back to us. Yeah, it's important that we have a certain level of trust, right? If you're making a donation to somebody, you would like to know that okay, this is going to somebody who's really, truly using this donation in a way to help others, that they're not just lining their pocket, they're not just trying to become rich. It's all too often nowadays that we see people who are trying to prosper from sharing certain teachings, not necessarily Buddhist teachings, but in other traditions, we see people who are looking to become very wealthy, very rich by way of sharing certain teachings like this. But that's not what I'm interested in at all. If I was interested in wealth and prosperity, I would have stayed being a business person because I was making an enormous amount of money doing that. But I realized that doing that, while it was a lot of learning, while there was some enjoyable things there, it also led to a lot of problems and complications too. And I find that my life now is very, 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 very peaceful, particularly if we compare it to the life that I was living before. And it doesn't mean that you can't practice these teachings and be a business person. It just means in terms of my journey and my life, I chose to step away from being a business person and instead devote my time and attention to developing my life practice. And then once I was able to develop that to a certain level, now I'm able to share those teachings with all of you to help you to develop in whichever way you would like. If you would like to continue to be in the business world and progress towards enlightenment, wonderful. We need lots of people who are out there in the world that are enlightened and functioning in all different roles of society. And then also if you're interested in being a teacher at some point and sharing these teachings in a similar way that I do, I'm willing to support you and encourage you along that path as well. But over the last couple of years, I've been able to get to a point where I'm able to devote 100% of my time to sharing these teachings. And this is why we've been able to produce these 
books and videos and classes and audiobooks and quizzes and personal guidance and all the things that I do to support all of you guys, it's because of the offerings that you guys are sharing that allows me to be able to do this. And if it wasn't for your support, I wouldn't be able to do the things that I do to support you. And I imagine some of you might say that if it wasn't for the support that I give you, you wouldn't be able to progress on this path in the way that you progress as well. And this is exactly the way that the Buddha intended his teachings to be shared, is that there's this mutual support, that there's a group of students who are supporting a teacher to get really deep into their practice and be able to share the teachings without any kind of hesitation or without any kind of obstacles in terms of uh, financial support or being involved in a career. But then also, I wouldn't be able to sustain my life without sharing these teachings with you. So there's this mutual support, this interconnectivity that we have as a community that, yes, David is sharing these teachings, but I wouldn't be able to share these teachings in the way that I do if it wasn't for the support that you guys provide to me. So I'm utterly grateful and appreciative of any support that I ever receive from anybody to share these donations with me so that I can then share the teachings with you. And in this way, there's this mutual support that there's these offerings that are provided to the teacher, but then there's these teachings that are coming back to you to help you to develop your life further. Thank you very much, David. That's all I have for today. All right. Well, I'll just thank all of you for attending today's class and taking the time to understand this important topic of what is merit. And as you choose to make offerings in different ways in the world, you're welcome to ask additional questions on that in other classes or in personal guidance or posting questions in Facebook or sending a private message. In our next class on Sunday, it will be chapter 11, which is all about meditation. The chapter is titled Meditation, Developing Your Practice. So we're going to go really deeply, spending two hours just discussing meditation and all the various types of meditations and all the various aspects of how to develop your practice. So far, I've already been teaching meditation as part of this program, but now we're going to dive deep into exactly the type of meditations that you're going to need in order to get to enlightenment and all the various aspects of practicing meditation and building up your practice. So this will be a great time for you to get all your questions asked about meditation that you currently have. And then on this Wednesday, we're going to be doing loving kindness meditation. And remember, that's to eradicate anger, hatred, and ill will in the mind. And we come together as a group as a way of supporting and encouraging each other in our practice. So you're welcome to come to this Wednesday's class and or next Sunday. So I appreciate all your diligence and your effort to learn and practice these teachings. I'll see you in a future class either this Wednesday or next Sunday. Have a very lovely rest of your day. Sawadikha. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember, 
to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.